day of the month of June, we celebrated the day of Pentecost, the day uh, in which we remember not so much now for its Old Testament significance, but its New Testament significance, which was the Holy Spirit descending upon the disciples. The Holy Spirit not only works in us, but works through us. And so this month we have been focusing on the idea of being sent, being sent by God, being sent by the Holy Spirit. In the past two Sundays, Reverend Dr. Rick Myers has led us in two inspiring messages discussing Jesus' call for the disciples to invite, to share, to heal, and to proclaim And in his sermon last Sunday, Rick also encouraged us to consider five ways of being a healing influence to others. And I thought this was really wonderful, so I wanted to um, review it again today. And those five ways are to nurture others, to connect with God, to grow in faith, to express ourselves in positive ways, and to be an example for others. So I hope you will continue to grow in these and and foster these qualities in your own life. Well, this Sunday we will continue in this theme of being sent and focus on how we are to magnify God and to multiply God's kingdom. Before we read, let us pray that the Holy Spirit would inspire us with these words. Almighty, eternal, magnificent God, In the stress and in the confusion of our world today, we need a word of truth and clarity. We struggle through life questions and life circumstances, and we look to you to teach us and to guide us. You are God, and besides you, there is no other. Our world needs you. We need you. Bless us with the reading and proclamation of your word. Amen. Let's start with some background. I like to do that, like context and background and and an overview uh, before we jump into our text. And if you think about the book of Acts and about Paul's conversion, his his being, uh, uh, becoming a follower of Christ, that occurs in Acts chapter 9. And date-wise, that was about A.D. 33 or 34, somewhere in that time frame, most likely. And from Acts chapter 9, for the next couple of chapters, the scene switches back and forth from Peter to Paul and Barnabas, to Peter and then Paul and Barnabas. It kind of, there's a transitional few chapters there. And then we get to chapter 13, and it, it really kind of focuses on, on Paul and his missionary journeys from then on uh, through the rest of the book of Acts. And so just thinking about background and big picture, and I didn't realize uh, Jerusalem was going to be in my way this morning when I was thinking about this, so I'll look at this one. So Paul goes on three missionary journeys, that's what we usually call them when we look at the book of Acts. So the first journey, date-wise, that's from about 46 AD to 47 AD, and you can find that in Acts 13 verses 1 through Acts 14 verse 28. Second missionary journey, so not long after he gets back from the first, maybe a year later, 48 to 51, and you can see where those appear in Acts. And then the third missionary journey, a little bit of a longer journey, uh, AD 52 to 57, and the corresponding passages 
there. And I, and I put the passages there because sometimes our Bibles, you know, really clear to note when uh, his journey kind of begins and ends. And sometimes, you know, you have to kind of do a little deciphering. So if you need it, it's right there. But something I wanted to, that kind of caught my attention, I don't know if I've ever really kind of spent time thinking about this. So if Paul was converted in AD 33 or 34, but he doesn't start his first missionary journey until AD 46, there was like 12 years there where Paul was likely growing in his own faith. You know, he didn't just convert and, and go. He, he grew in his faith, most likely. And those missionary journeys, you know, we read them through the book of Acts, and you can just kind of go boom, 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 boom. And sometimes you don't even realize, oh, he's starting like a completely new effort here because we just kind of read right through. But those missionary journeys took place over the course of 11 years. So the book of Acts covers quite a few years. I think that's important for us to consider as we're thinking about the idea of being sent. You know, sometimes we're just kind of in for the the quick, oh, I'll go do this, and I'll go do this. But we need to think about the idea of being sent as a lifestyle, in a sense. That whatever we're doing, wherever God is calling us to, whether it's, you know, like Paul, maybe he's kind of home in Jerusalem or in Antioch, or he's out, you know, circling around what's modern-day Turkey and Greece and that area of the world, that takes time. That's nothing we have to, to rush and just kind of put beginning and ends to. That's a part of our lives to be sent. So that's, that's one thing I wanted to, to note today. But for today's text, so we're going to focus on the, uh, an account that happens in the, near the beginning of his first missionary journey. And so this is kind of a, a map. He begins in Antioch here. And he goes down, we'll talk about this in a second. But you'll notice here, I don't know if you can read that, it also says Antioch. So if you're going through Acts, it's important to note there's two Antiochs in the ancient world. And sometimes you have to kind of think, okay, which one's he in at this time? And Antioch here in Syria was an important place for Paul, I think. He didn't ever write. We don't have a letter to the church there or anything like that, like we do other churches that he visited and ministered with. But if you look at the book of Acts, every single one of his missionary journeys really kind of launches from Antioch in Syria. That place has, has, I think, a special place in Paul's heart. And we'll see that... Actually, let's go ahead and go to those next verses. I'll point this out. So... Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3 say this. While they were worshiping, so Paul's in Antioch in Syria at this time. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. See, that church in Antioch in Syria confirmed and endorsed God's call upon Paul and Barnabas to go forth and share the gospel. They were the church that prayed for them, that blessed them, and sent them forth to continue in that ministry. They were, they were like the sending church in a way. And I highlight this point, for one, to say that as a church community, as a gathering of, of believers here it's also important for us to likewise be a church that blesses, 
that prays for and that sends disciples to continue in the work that God has called them to. It's something that we did uh, just a couple weeks ago before the youth went on their, um, their trip to Colorado, their work trip. And it's something that we're going to do towards the end of the service today. We actually have two commissionings at the end of our service today and then a blessing and ascending later. So a lot happening later in the service. But there's biblical precedence for that. And we see that here when we, when we consider Paul and Barnabas as they're being sent by the church in Antioch and Syria to go forth and spread the good news. The second thing that I want to highlight from verse 2 is that it is the Holy Spirit who calls us to minister in Jesus' name. Verse 4, let's, let's look at verse four, 4 for a second. So likewise, it emphasizes this point. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. As I mentioned a little bit ago, so a few weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday, preached about how, or I hope I emphasized this point clearly enough, the point that being sent always begins with the Holy Spirit. Being sent always begins with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's not just an add-on or maybe even in an important piece. The Spirit is necessary when we are sent I want us to go back and look at the map briefly again, and we're just going to kind of follow. So again, he starts here, they send him off, he goes to the island of Cyprus, and then sails northern, northward, and this is what's modern-day Turkey, all this up here, and uh, they land in the port city of Perga. Uh, you can still go to the ancient ruins of Perga, it's actually a pretty neat place there, and they continue north to Antioch of Pisidia, and I want to, um, or just a side note here. So I always kind of imagine Paul walking through like arid, like Martian type landscapes, you know, where there's just like a bunch of rocks and no vegetations, maybe some small bushes. But actually, just FYI, this part of Turkey's really pretty. Uh, it's got some, maybe not mountains like Colorado mountains, but, you know, lots of hills and like pine trees and water and lakes and streams and everything. So he wasn't maybe so much roughing it right here. Other places, probably so. But um, so he's traveling north through this nicer area of what's modern day Turkey. And we get to our text for today. And we're going to read it and discuss it in, in smaller chunks. But let's begin now in Acts chapter 13 at verse 13. So it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So here's kind of the scene. They arrive in Antioch of, of Pisidia. It's the Sabbath day, the day of worship and rest. And scripture was read like we do in church on Sunday morning. Scripture was read uh, from the Torah and the prophets. And then the leaders give an invitation for someone to offer words of encouragement in response to the scripture readings. And so Paul stands up and he's about to give a speech. But also 
I like to try to make connection points. And I wanted to note that even today, so you can go to Turkey and you can see the ancient ruins of not only Perga, like I just mentioned a second ago, but you can see the ancient ruins of Antioch of Pisidia, where Paul is. Not only that, there's a, actually, let's go to that first picture. Okay, so uh, it probably doesn't show up too great from where you are there. But so uh, it was obviously very cold the day I was there, lots of snow on the ground. But this is kind of what you might, there we go, Jerusalem was in the way. Uh, the main road here, and then it kind of goes this way, but you know, some kind of rolling hills in the background. And these would have been different structures and buildings all here and, and back here. Um, but this next picture, so, so the guy in the hat, that's me. And you can see this wall behind us here. And we're also standing on uh, uh, concrete, or not concrete, but blocks that have been set on the ground, a foundation. And so in Antioch of Pisidia, you can go to the ruins of the Church of St. Paul. And so that's where we are. We're kind of standing on the spot of the Church of St. Paul. But what's cool about that church is that it was, it's believed to have been constructed on the foundation of the synagogue. The synagogue where Paul is about to give this speech. And so when I was there in seminary, this was in 2016, I had my phone out. I pulled up Acts 13 and we read Paul's speech, you know, in the location where Paul supposedly gave the speech. It's kind of, you know, kind of gives you a goosebumps type of moment. But you can, you know, go there. You can connect with what we have today with history. So I like to try to make those connection points when we can. So we're about to read Paul's speech. And in his speech, he begins by giving a, a very brief overview of sorts, uh, basically from, from Moses into the time of Judges and Samuel, Saul and David, ends with King David, uh, and then continues on. But I want you to notice in this reading, it's not just a, about the events. That's not maybe what's as important here, but how, to, how Paul talks about these events in history. He doesn't just talk about these events as just things that happened. Rather, he talks about how God was active and orchestrating these events in history by his divine providence. He emphasizes God's action and involvement in all these events. So we're going to pick up in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he, being God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. The history, as Paul gives it, 
is God-centered. It's not just random events or just, you know, given a historical account. He's connecting it with God's work and action in history, in time. And so all those events, he's giving this whole narrative and he's saying God was orchestrating all this according to his plan and will. And what he's about to do, he's, gonna, he's basically going to say, and you know what? All of that had a purpose. And so he continues in verse 23, of this man's offspring, he's talking about David there, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. A savior, Jesus, as God had promised. All that Old Testament stuff leads us to Jesus as God had promised through the prophets, as God had been orchestrating throughout all of history. But Paul's not done. Next, he explains how Jesus is the answer and the fulfillment to God's ultimate providential plan for redemption and restoration. And how everything about Jesus and everything that happened even in Jesus' life, everything that happened to him was according to the established plan and will of God. So he continues in verse 24. Before Jesus' coming... John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What God had promised, what God had been orchestrating, what the prophets had been proclaiming, what God had promised, God has fulfilled in Christ. And that is good news. That is the message of salvation. And Paul continues, just just a little bit more here, a couple verses. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers... That through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look you scoffers. Be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. That was Paul's speech to the synagogue that day. Paul made it clear that all these stories of Israel's past, 
the words of the Torah and the writings and the prophets were not just events and stories. Rather, God was working and had been working all throughout time and history to bring forth the fulfillment of his plan of redemption and restoration in the person of Jesus, our Savior. What God had promised, God has fulfilled in Christ. It's, Paul puts the focus on God. It's about what God had done. God is the center of it all. It all began with God. It was all fulfilled by God. And it all points to God in Christ. That good news is our good news to this day. Jesus is our Savior. And in him we have the forgiveness of sins. We have salvation. We have a restored relationship with God. Praise be to God. And because of what God has done, we, we are called by God to be his representatives in the world. We are called to bear God's image and likeness, meaning we are called to imitate his character, his holiness, and to display his love in the world. As I mentioned in the children's lessons, our lives should magnify God. And I mean the word magnify, there's, there's two ways of understanding it, and I mean it in both ways. First, we magnify God in our praise of God. In response to God's greatness and goodness, we exalt the Lord. We praise the Lord. Psalm 34, 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Psalm 69, 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. To magnify the Lord is a, it's a genuine response to the adoration for all God is and for all that God has done. And the only appropriate response from us to the goodness and to the greatness and to the glory of God is praise, is to magnify the Lord, is to worship the Lord. So I have a rhetorical question for you, meaning don't, don't answer it. I'm not going to put anyone on the spot. If I were to ask you, when does worship end? I hope you wouldn't say, well, it's supposed to end at 1130. <laughs> we got to go to lunch. It's a little bit of a trick question what I'm asking. When does our worship end? Our worship never ends. Some of you might be worried, like, how long is Tyler planning on preaching today? No, it's not, not that. Our worship with our lives never ends. What I'm trying to say is that our worship is so much more than what we do on Sunday mornings for an hour. Or at least it should be. Our worship is that which should define our lives over the course of our lives. Again, think back to Paul and his and his from his conversion through all his missionary journeys. I mean, that's 20-something years. I didn't do all the math, but something like that. Our lives should be defined by worship. And Paul, who knows a lot about that, he encourages us in Romans 12, and he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Our worship is what we do with our 
lives, when we offer our, our lives as a living sacrifice to God to use us, to work in us and through us. Our worship is about entrusting ourselves wholly and completely to our Creator, to the God who saves. And it's about aligning our lives, our thoughts. It's renewing our minds. It's, it's aligning our plans and our will with that of the Lord of all creation. Which leads us to the second sense in which we are sent out to magnify God. So we magnify God in our praise and adoration of God. But we also magnify God for others with our lives and with our words. We magnify God for others with our lives and with our words. We, sisters and brothers, we are the ones who are given the responsibility to be image bearers of God. To show others what God is like. We fail often. I get that. I do too. But we are given that responsibility to try again and again, each and every day as a living sacrifice, to show others the love and the grace and the holiness and the greatness of God. We are called to be heralds of the good news of Christ. We are the voices. Our voices are the voices who share the good news. And we do this largely in two ways. We, by one, just pat, by pattering our lives after our teacher and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says also in Romans that we have been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Our lives are supposed to look like Jesus. We're supposed to walk as Jesus did. And just like a magnifying glass brings an object into clear focus, our lives should be that sort of instrument for others that when they look at us or through us, they see God more clearly. Because we live in a lost and a broken world that has very little spiritual vision. And it's us who are supposed to bring God and God's love into view, into focus for them. Jesus says in Matthew 5, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Through your good works, God is glorified. Through your good works, others can see the glory of God more clearly. I mentioned a moment ago, we are also the voices who share the good news of the gospel. I used this verse on our, our youth trip uh, just a couple weeks ago, but it's certainly relevant for us this morning. It comes from Romans as well, Romans chapter 10. It says, Paul's asking uh, a, a few rhetorical questions, trying to get uh, his readers to think. And it's centered around this idea of salvation and how we are to proclaim the message and he, and he writes this beginning in verse 14 of chapter 10 how then can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them and how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We are to be the ones with the beautiful feet. You, know, you don't have to take your shoes off and kind of compare your feet with each other. That, that would be weird. But 
we are the ones. What makes that beautiful is not so much our feet, is that we are carrying the message of the love of God. We are sent forth to magnify the Lord. And I believe that it is our genuine desire, or it's, it, that it is our genuine desire to magnify the Lord that naturally leads us to this next step, our, our closing point for today, and that is to the multiplication of the people of God. See, we cannot talk about multiplying the kingdom of God without first really understanding what it means to magnify God in our own lives and for others. As I I just talked about, we are sent forth to magnify the Lord, where we show and tell people about the Lord, and from that, others see what God is like. They experience God's love. They hear about God's love. They hear the words of the gospel, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. We are to show and tell people about the Lord. And Paul's encounter with the, the believers in Antioch is not quite over. Um, we don't have time this morning to cover every detail. You can read it later if you want. But the text goes on to describe how Paul's speech, it sparked an enormous amount of curiosity in the people. They wanted to hear more. They, they invited him back next week. They wanted to hear more about this message of hope and salvation. They wanted to hear more about the love of God. They had a, a genuine interest in that. And our encouragement is that, or from that is as we magnify the Lord through our praise, through our prayer, through our proclamation, we hope and we pray that we would be a people, this church would be a people who will multiply the kingdom of God. So let's magnify the Lord. Magnify the Lord in your life. While you're at home, magnify the Lord before your children. Magnify the Lord, uh, you know, when you're at your kids' sports games and talking to other parents or, or scout groups or whatever you might be involved in. Magnify the Lord at work to those you work alongside or at the coffee shop or on, on the golf course. Yes, you can even magnify the Lord on the golf course. It may not help you with your golf game, but you can magnify the Lord through that. Our church has a great opportunity to magnify the Lord this week with with even our vacation Bible school. Those volunteering, I know sometimes when we volunteer for stuff, you know, we put our name on the list and we think, okay, what responsibilities do we have? But I want to encourage you to consider how you can magnify the Lord in a new way this week in your own life. How can you magnify the Lord for the children that they would see Christ more clearly through your example, through your teaching. Our church has other opportunities in which we can magnify the Lord, obviously through worship, through Bible studies, through mission efforts. Um, even yesterday, uh, helping with Katie Christian Ministry and their, their food fair, or next week with the, the food drive. Uh, we, with Vacation Bible School, there's a mission um, uh, opportunity there to help out Presbyterian children's homes and services. Not long ago, we heard from Cam and Paige Dean from Faith and Practice and their their trip to Guatemala. There's so many other examples of that. And even the service, we'll hear more from uh, Honorio on his trip to El Salvador as we send him uh, forth to, to continue the work that God has for him there. 
But all these are efforts to magnify the Lord and to work to multiply God's kingdom. We can do that individually in our own lives, in our own families, in our workplaces. We can do that through the ministries and the opportunities through our church. But whatever it is, through our personal lives or through gathering with groups of people, that's our call, to magnify the Lord and to multiply the kingdom of God. So I pray that we will. Will you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness and your greatness. Lord, we know that you have been working throughout history or throughout the events that we read about in the Old Testament, through all the events of Jesus' life, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, through the events that took place in the lives of Peter and Paul as they shared the gospel message around the Mediterranean world. Lord, you have continued to work through those who follow you, through the church, throughout all time, and even to this day. So we pray that your spirit would revive us anew, that we, we would be people who would magnify your name to promote the cause of your love and justice in the world. Lord, that we would be a people who would multiply the kingdom. Lord, we pray, though, pray for those in our congregation in need of prayer for the Harmon family, for the Hill family, for the Boex family, for Fred Adair, for John Rainwater.